So the purpose of these talks and <clears throat> the different instructions that we get is to help uh, help us illuminate this path of awakening, we sometimes call it, or path of liberation. And uh, it's easy to have doubt about this because uh, as interesting as it sounds, as attracted as we are to liberation or awakening, um, didn't seem like the path is uh, so available or so clearly laid out. So on Thursday night, I talked about, tried to talk, uh, tried to talk about this path of awakening in a very straightforward way. Like if we wish to be awake or wish to be free, then we have to, whatever that freedom, that liberation is, it has to be realizable here and now. So we have to practice being free with the here and now. And so you can think of RAIN, that simple instruction, guidance to open. It's a, a direct practice of being free, opening and being free. There's no freedom without being connected, right? Because freedom implies, it means free with the conditions of the moment, for example. So we're interested in not theoretical freedom, but freedom being this human being with these conditions, with this kind of conditioned mind, with this body. And so we have this practice we call being mindful, or you can call it recognizing, accepting, being interested, realizing non-attachment. So whether you talk about it in a, with one word, like being mindful, or lots of words, it's a direct path or direct practice of being free, because that's what we're interested in. And this, this kind of integrity, I think, is important in our spiritual life because there's so much idealism and uh, soft thinking imprecise thinking in spiritual circles. As if whatever we're devoted to in a spiritual sense, in a religious sense, is like, uh, well, I don't really understand it, but still I'm, I'm devoted to it. Or I don't know what it, how it relates to here and now, but I, I value it. And that's just, it's like uh, selling ourselves short as if the most important thing in life somehow doesn't refer back to this moment. So last night I talked about um, ways to ways that we already are inspiring the energy, the faith, and then the energy that flows out of faith, the confidence, and the energy that flows out of confidence by tapping into things that were already beginning, like you could say elements of freedom or elements of the path that we've already bumped up against, we're already beginning to figure out intuiting, like the, you know, some intuitive direct sense of basic goodness, this profound capacity of this mind to include. 
And whether you want to call this love, or whether you want to refer to this as the knowing mind, the Buddha that knows, the one that knows. But like some of the small groups today, we talked about a bigger container. Like how it seems always possible, whenever, however much the mind is inclined to get caught, to fall into some defined state, you know, some defined meaning we're giving the moment, it's always possible, in a sense, to see that this is what's happening and to include it as something that's happening. So we're not seeing the mess and rejecting it. We're seeing the mess and we're including it. But this is a, a potential or a, a real capacity. And I talked about this capacity uh, or this uh, insight, really, into how much power there is in the continuity of awareness. And uh, although this isn't necessarily immediately available, we can immediately begin to sense it because we just need to string together a, one or two or three moments of mindfulness, and we see how even that really shifts things. Just, just one moment, just landing, sinking in, can, you know, we could be caught for weeks in some drama. <clears throat> and all it takes is a one moment of recognizing this is just drama. And it's like all of that confusion, all that darkness immediately goes away. Joseph Goldstein has a funny story he tells, I think it was with Sharon. And, you know, this is after, this is after many years of being a teacher, someone who has deep, deep insight <clears throat> and uh, teaching for years and just dealing with a lot of fear in his practice and in his life. And he was teaching a retreat with Sharon, I believe, and they were taking a walk during one of the breaks. And Joseph was just telling Sharon or whoever he was teaching with about, you know, fears coming up, I'm working with it, but there's just a lot of fear. And uh, this person, this te other teacher, teaching colleague said, well, it's just fear, you know? It's just an emotion or something like that. And for some reason, you know, Joseph was ready one more time. I'm sure this has happened many, many times before. But it's not like once is enough to say, oh, yeah. Because we could easily be imagining that I'm a person who has a lot of fear conditioned in my mind. And then the corollary to that statement is, and it's going to take a lot of practice to work through that, and maybe lifetimes of practice. And it's, it seems so skillful to have a thought like that, like that's reasonable given the facts on the ground to think that way. <clears throat> but it's completely misunderstanding the actual experience of fear in the moment, which is it's just a thought or just an emotion that comes and goes. And that any story we tell ourselves about the fear and how much it's happening and how deep it is and how heavy, those are just words being known, thoughts being known. And it's the continuity, you know, that balance that we get from continuity. And, uh, um, you know, the thing that continuity reveals 
is how the mirage is created. Mirages just are not as effective when the mind understands how they're being created. It's like a magician's trick. It's not very interesting when you know the trick. It's only fascinating when we don't know the trick. So with continuity, that moment-to-moment-to-moment mindful awareness provides, is it that continuity reveals how... Because with continuity of awareness, you see the birth of some drama, you see its full display, and you see it passing away. So you really see how the mind makes meaning and its tendency to get lost in it. So it doesn't matter what kind of meaning the mind creates. If there's some continuity of awareness, it's just meaning the mind's created. And then another one is just uh, contemplating the very important place of intention for setting things in motion and how uh, how empowering that understanding intention is because all of a sudden the mind, the heart, can participate in the world of skillfulness and unskillfulness. We feel like, uh, okay, yeah, there's karma, there's cause and effect, but I know, I know how to show up in this world. And understanding intention deeply leads to this fourth inspiration for action or for practice, renunciation, the joy of renunciation. In a sense, it's the, it is the most skillful of all intentions, the intention to not grasp or the intention to abandon grasping, to put down selfing. So I talked last night about how um, these things as uh, uh, forces of faith and confidence and energy, they set in motion the five spiritual faculties, which when they're humming along become the five spiritual powers. It's one of the more important lists and uh, one of the more important models that the Buddha used to teach. Um, So faith. Uh, supplies the energy. That's the second. Energy allows for the continuity of mindfulness, which allows for the stabilizing steadiness of attention, samadhi, which allows for insight, which allows for faith. So it's it's just that one way the Buddha talked about this path of awakening, this engine of awakening. So last night we talked about how to get on the path, how to use one of these four things contemplate one of these four things and feel that inspiration to keep it going. You know, the inspiration, the energy to abandon distractedness, abandon the mind's attraction to things that don't really lead anywhere. We all know how easy it is to spend the retreat figuring things out, like figuring out who everybody is. Like, can it, is it possible by the time the retreat ends, to have a name to go with every face without talking to anybody. People do these sorts of things on retreats. It's like these little tasks, you know, they just look at the list and uh, he doesn't look like a Dave. 
I always tell this story. It's easy to tell other people's stories about uh, my good friend Paul, um, who a long time leader in the local community before he moved out to California a number of years ago. But uh, he spent one nine-day retreat with Steve and Kamala. We were down at the Tau Center in Winona where the retreats used to be held. And he spent the whole retreat figuring out the top 20 movies of all time in the correct order. <laughs> and it somehow it just seemed really important. And he was a sincere practitioner. So it's good to have a little bit of a sense of humor when your mind, when you find your mind obsessively trying to figure something out. And even though you might, it's like you're drowning, you might come above the surface and realize how ridiculous it is. But then it isn't long. It has enough momentum and you have to figure out something, whatever it might be. And the amazing thing is like we can have things all worked out and then you go home, you know, and, and let's say you wrote it down or something, you look at it or you remember, and it's like, it just doesn't line up with reality. It seemed like it made so much sense, <laughs> whatever we figured out. But it often doesn't, because it's just in its own little bubble. And we call that yogi mind. So <clears throat> to break through yogi mind, to, at least temporarily, then we need some force and the force has to come from something real, something that the mind is really seeing, really connecting with. And so these are just four ways that you might have uncovered some dhamma, some truth. <clears throat> truth in terms of basic goodness, truth in terms of the power of the mind that has continuous awareness, truth in terms of seeing something about intention, understanding something about the power of intention, to set in motion something, intentions have consequences. So I can set something in motion. Well, let's see. What do I want to set in motion? Something good or something bad? And then the, the joy, the release, the happiness of renunciation. Here's something Steve Armstrong said about these five faculties in an article call, called Got Attitude. I shared one of the stories from this article yesterday about his uh, interaction with one of the uh, county bureaucrats. Anyways, uh, Steve says, strength of mind emerges from the alchemical process of faith, energy, and awareness. The mind is freed from the suffering of conditioning by stabilizing the mind so that wise understanding can evolve. It's a natural process that is encouraged by right attitudes of mind. So you could say these four things I talked about last night are right attitudes. <clears throat> it's up to each one of us. It's up to each one of us to choose whether to take this journey. As Don Juan encouraged Carlos Castaneda, and then he's quoting from one of Carlos Castaneda's books, we either make ourselves miserable or we make ourselves strong. The amount of work is the same. It's hard work to stay distracted. You know, it's hard work to worry. It's hard work to hate ourselves or to hate others. It's hard work to feel better than others. So I want to talk tonight not so much about it stepping on the path, but how we fall off the path fall back into the swirl. 
<clears throat> and uh, one of the most dramatic descriptions, I didn't have a printout, so I have it on the internet here, that I thought I'd share with you from the Buddhist teachings. He talks about uh, the hindrance in a very, I think, graphic way. Bhikkhus, practitioners, there are huge trees with tiny seeds and huge bodies and circulars of other trees. And the trees which they encircle become bent, twisted, and split. And what are those huge trees with tiny seeds and huge bodies? And he goes on and he names local trees from his time. Now, I don't know if you know about this, probably you do, but there are certain, I think some of them are in the fig family. Um, and uh, the seeds, that the birds eat the fruit, and then they go into the big trees of the forest, and they poop, of course, and the little seeds fall on the branches. Some, of course, go to the ground, but these seeds, these plants, can start to grow on the branches themselves. And there's enough humidity in the air, I guess, and nutrients in the bark that they can just grow and maybe eventually drop roots down to the ground. And the way these trees uh, grow is they encircle the tree slowly over many, many years until there's no tree, original tree there. They've completely encircled the tree, taken over its structure, have the entire canopy. And you're getting, I'm sure, the point that this is... <laughs> the Buddha's simile or, uh, for the hindrances. So too practitioners. When some folks, some practitioners here, have left behind central pleasures and gone forth from the household life into the monastic life, one becomes bent, twisted, and split because of those same central pleasures or because of others worse than them. So he's basically saying even people who become nuns and monks, you know, who have this good intention to do the practice get taken over by these five hindrances. These five practitioners are obstructions, hindrances, encirclers of the mind, weakeners of wisdom. What five? Sensual desires is an obstruction, a hindrance, an encircler of the mind, a weakener of wisdom, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse, doubt, are all obstructions, weakeners of wisdom. They are the five obstructions, hindrances, and circulars of the mind, weakeners of wisdom. And then in the same discourse, he mentions the factors of awakening, which are non-obstructions, non-hindrances, non-encirculars of the mind. And I'll just mention these so that you've at least heard them and can start recognizing them. But probably what you would expect. Mindfulness is one of the seven factors of awakening because it understands how the mind may be in or out of balance, among other things. And then there are three energizing and three tranquilizing factors of awakening. The energizing, investigation, energy, and joy, or rapture. And the tranquilizing would be tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And so they're often taught in opposition to one another, the hindrances and the factors of awakening. So with this kind of graphic image, it's, I find it useful, and even with a sense of humor, like to see our mind getting encircled. And sometimes we just can't help ourselves. Like we actually catch it at the beginning. We see our mind going down a particular road. We see our mind, we, sometimes in great detail, 
sort of like what it's attending to. Because the basic cause for the hindrances arising and getting stronger is the unwise attention, the careless attention to whatever it is that triggers that hindrance. So you can think of sense desires, like if there's something that unavoidably, quite naturally is attractive to you, food, another person, somebody's shawl, doesn't matter what it is, a pair of boots. It's nice seeing those wearing your I often, I'm not kidding, this is true. This is one of those yogi mind things. It's like, you know, if you ever want to figure out what kind of clothes or shoes you should buy, go on a big retreat because people who've been practicing a while, they become obsessed with just the right thing. <laughs> and, you, and you look at the shoes and you'll see something that will be just right for you and then you just make a note of the brand. <laughs> it's amazing how many cool things you see on your kids. <laughs> so, where was I? <laughs> <laughs> Hmm? <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Careless attention. Right, so the, the proximate cause for the hindrances arising and getting established is careless attention to that which triggers the hindrance. So like I was bringing up sense desires, it's like if we let ourselves, we, we kind of catch the pair of shoes out of the corner of our eyes. And then it's like careless attention would be Assuming it's okay to give that pair of shoes full attention, of course, when nobody's around. And then, like, really, so you can actually see, you know, who made those shoes. Or take a look, like, is that a pair of shoes I'd actually want? Or coat, or meditation cushion, or, you know, whatever it might be that's caught your eye. So that, that causes it. And then the thing that cuts through that liberates the mind from the hindrances is careful attention. So we're basically seeing the impermanent, unsatisfying and impersonal nature of whatever it is we're looking at. That's what careful attention does. It reveals that. In one of Joseph Goldstein's talks on the Satipatthana Sutta, he quotes from The Life of Pi. I know many of you probably have read the book. I saw the movie but haven't read the book. But uh, the author in that book has a great line. He says, to choose doubt as a philosophy of life is akin to choosing immobility as a means of transportation. <laughs> and this is this, you know, all the hindrances involve this, this uh, unproductive proliferation. And this unproductive proliferation has as its heart objectifying the thinker. We're, we're turning the thinker into me, objectifying it as me, and then of course that propels the thinking process. I read that recently in one of Ajahn Tanisaro's article where he was uh, referring to this uh, sutta from the Buddha that's quite good. Many of you have heard me read it before. I usually read Andy Olensky's translation. This is Ajahn Tanisaro's translation of it. And this is from the Sutta Nipata collection of discourses. And in the Buddha's talking about this uh, 
concept samvega, which usually gets translate, translated as uh, spiritual urgency, like a wholesome sense of danger and not practicing. So we're attracted to wake up because we see what can happen in not uh, being awake. Here he translates it, uh, Ajahn Tanisaro translates it as terror or dismay. So the sutta goes like this. I will tell of how I experienced samvega, spiritual urgency or terror. Mm -hmm. I will tell you, <coughs> I will tell how I experienced samvega. So that he's obviously referring to before the time he was fully awake. Seeing people floundering like fish in small puddles, competing with one another. As I saw this, fear came into me. The world was entirely without substance. All the directions were knocked out of time, knocked out of line. Wanting a haven for myself, I saw nothing that wasn't laid claim to. Seeing nothing in the end but competition, I felt discontent. And then I saw an arrow here, so very hard to see, embedded in the heart, overcome by this arrow, you run in all directions. But simply on pulling it out, you don't run, you don't sink. And then uh, this arrow that the Buddha is referring to, Ajahn Tanisaro says is papancha. And I'm assuming that it's in that sutta, that word, and you might have heard that term, that Pali term, papancha, which usually gets translated as mental proliferation. But as Ajahn Tanisaro likes to do, if some of the some of you know this who read his stuff, he's he's really good at, you know, correcting these misunderstandings that creep in that are sort of right but not really completely right. So mental proliferation is sort of right as a translation for papancha, that tendency of the mind to proliferate. But of course, some kinds of mental proliferation might be quite useful. So mental proliferation in itself is just mental proliferation. What makes mental proliferation unskillful is when it's fueled by the objectification of the thinker, of a me or a mine. So when it's fueled by that, then it's not going to lead anywhere. So this is that proliferation process. And you could say that it's generally fueled by these five hindrances of greed, aversion, doubt, restlessness, and dullness. He translates it uh, as the objectification. I mean, that, with that word, but specifically the objectification of I'm the thinker as a object. And doesn't that seem right? You know, me as a thing that we've objectified ourselves, which is so funny, like why do we have to do that? It should stand out that we objectify ourselves. That that the object is also the represents the subject. That that it's like a uh, something's off there, which we call dukkha, right? And he, you know, as he says here in the earlier part, um, the world was entirely without substance. All the directions were knocked out of line. 
So there's just something off from the very beginning because of this process of objectification. Another way these uh, hindrances, you know, this unwise attention to experience, is it, it, uh, this unwise attention allows the mind to see or experience what it, the mind imagines as certainty. Like even using that example about seeing a pair of shoes that would be just right, there's a certain certainty in that perception. Like, that would be nice to have that pair of shoes. I would be happier if I had that pair of shoes if I took a nap when dinner comes. And the thing is, whenever the mind, through unwise attention, has some certainty about anything, then it also has to pluck out doubt. You don't get one without its shadow. For those of you who were on the uh, workshop last week, we talked about this, like uh, in terms of confidence and self-reliance, it can't be based that self-reliance or independence, confidence, can't be based on certainty. It has to be based on a, a more subtle understanding that includes ambiguity and uncertainty and things being unformed. But see, we think that we need certainty. I really liked, uh, I mentioned in one of the small groups, this article by uh, Pema Chodron that somebody sent me. I think it's from her book. Um, maybe I can find it here. I guess it's not stated what book it's from. It could be just an article. But she's talking about taking refuge. And uh, she uses this image of, of the importance of, of uh, love. But not as a thing that's certain and not as a, a place to remain. You know, it's, it's a little bit true just in terms of human development and attachment theory about the importance of having a, a really healthy period of time where the parents or the caregivers are seen as gods or just there, benevolent gods there, taking care of our needs. I scream, they show up, you know, I scream in a slightly different way, they change my diaper. And it's like learning that the world benevolently responds to my screams. And uh, learning that we can count on something. But then what do we do as a human being, even as an ordinary human being, is, well, we, we start to run away from the nest. You know, at some point, at least, we do. Hopefully, if we're going to have a healthy adult life, we practice leaving it behind. So this is what Pema says. She uses a similar example. The whole process of meditation is one of creating the good ground, <clears throat> that cradle of loving kindness, where we are actually nurtured. What's being nurtured is our confidence in our own wisdom, 
our own health, our own courage, our own good-heartedness. We develop some sense that the way we are, the kind of personality that we have, the way we express life is good. And that by being who we are completely and totally, and totally, and by totally accepting that, and by having respect for ourselves, we are standing on the ground of warriorship. In other words, as she's going to say in a few moments, we're ready to take a leap. So the love, the sort of recognizing and uh, cultivating the experience of love, the reality, reality of acceptance of love, of forgiveness, of patience, allows us to step out of what is known. And she talks about how really liking having read uh, Alice in Wonderland, uh, Wonderland? Yeah, as a child. And uh, because when she falls, she doesn't panic. I don't, I don't remember the scene from the book, but uh, she just falls and she notices everything around her as she's fallen. And then Pema Children goes on and says, in every human life, you were born and you were born alone. You go through that birth canal alone and then you pop out alone. And then a whole process begins. And when you die, you die alone. And no one goes with you. The journey that you make, no matter what your belief about the journey is, is made alone. The fundamental idea of taking refuge is that between birth and death we are alone. Therefore, taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, this path, does not mean finding consolation in them as a child might find consolation in mommy and daddy. Rather, it's a basic expression of your aspiration to leap out of the nest. Whether you feel ready for it or not, to go through your puberty rites and to be an adult with no hand to hold. Um, I'm sorry, I'm, I skipped the line here. Rather, it's a basic expression of your aspiration to leap out of the nest, whether you feel ready for it or not to go through your puberty rites, to be an adult with no hand to hold. It expresses your realization that the only way to begin the real journey of life is to feel the ground of loving kindness and respect for yourself and then to leap. Not to become dependent on that love, but to use it to step away, to step into the unknown. I really like this. And she goes on to say that it's not just once, like that the process of practice is at times rediscovering, strengthening love, gratitude, forgiveness, patience, all these qualities of the heart, and then leaping, and then love, and then leaping. later, a couple of paragraphs later, she says, the warrior realizes that the dragon is nothing but unfinished business presenting itself, and that it's fear that really needs to be worked with. The dragon is just a motion picture that appears there, and it appears in many forms. The lover who jilted us, the parent who never loved us enough, somebody who abused us. Basically, what we work with is our fear and our holding back which is not necessarily obstacles. 
The only obstacle is ignorance, this refusal to look at our unfinished business. If every time the warrior goes out and meets the dragon, he or she says, ha, it's, it's a dragon again, no way am I going to face this, and then just splits. Then life becomes a recurring story of getting up in the morning, going out, meeting the dragon, and saying, no way, and splitting. In that case, you become more and more timid, more and more afraid, more and more of a baby. No one's nurturing you, but you're still in that cradle, and you never go through your puberty rites. So this is, you know, we hear this a lot in the small groups which I think is really good. You know, we hear people opening to things that are hard to open to and uh, being in that place of not knowing what to do or being in that place where we're trying to practice but it just seems to make the mind tight or seems to be counterproductive. And it just seems so appropriate to run away. I've I'm been catching myself lately uh, in, you know, my own somewhat subtle way that uh, relying on running away fantasies, hiding fantasies, like as a means to manage what I'm not liking in my life or what's challenging in my life. And <clears throat> it can it can be all sorts of scenarios, like just um, having a very strong attra attraction to sleeping or to other sense experiences, like uh, a way of dangling carrots in front of us, like I'll, I'll do what I have to do, but only because this is at the end. Retirement, maybe for some people, you know, I just got to make it to the end. End of the retreat where we can go home and you know, do whatever we imagine we'll do when we go home. So this is our own particular way of that, acting out what Payment Children was just talking about, where <clears throat> we kind of, once again, go to that confusing place in our practice where there's physical pain and we don't know how to be skillful with it or there's some emotion we don't know how to be skillful with or nothing's happening and we don't know how to be skillful with that or whatever it might be. I mean, there's an, a whole array of experiences that we meditators, practitioners, people who have put themselves on this path, run into. And the question is, how can we leap? Well, Pema's advice is take some time and <clears throat> honor the nobility of your being. Like, I'm a human being, and it isn't easy being a human being. And I'm not only a human being, which isn't easy, but I'm a human being that really wants to wake up, that, that has the goal to aspire to be free, no matter the conditions. I mean, that's a pretty impressive aspiration, to be free no matter the conditions in my life, to be a wise and loving and free human being, to be able to respond freely you know, with great aliveness and wisdom and love in life. So that, for me, I mean, that evokes a, a lot of love and compassion and patience and forgiveness and all the 
supports that can make for a nice cuddly nest for a while. And then, you know, instead of, because we will stick up the nest if we just kind of hang out there. It's like, have you ever looked at a bird's nest? There is a lot of bird shit in a bird's nest. <laughs> they, they haven't evolved to having outhouses, out nests. <laughs> So um, we can keep that in mind, you know, just that uh, willingness to do what feels really hard to do. Be patient in a way that seems really hard to be patient. Look, be interested. I jotted down some of these places. You know, like even the Buddha's image of fish flopping around in water too shallow. I mean, it wouldn't be easy to be hanging out in that place where that's that's our perception of ourselves and uh, and everybody else. You know, we would want want to run from that. We'd want to drink, or watch a funny movie, or you know, move away, if that were our perception of our lives, of our kind of community. So we want, like, some of those places that we have to look at, we have to turn toward where we can leap, are some of those strongly established beliefs, you know, things we have faith in, not faith in our basic goodness or faith in the power of continuity of mindfulness or faith in intention to set things in motion or the joy of renunciation. But we have faith, um, like, and silly things like I've started my practice too late. I probably won't get anywhere in this practice. You know, we can have a lot of faith in that. And so it's like, do we have the strength, the willingness to leap, even though we started late. I mean, let's say that somehow objectively we started late. You know, I'm already an old person or whatever. My mind is already starting to fall apart. I can't remember things too well. I'm always sleepy. You see, it's like, so? <laughs> it's still better to practice than to not practice. But it's a leap. You know, it's like it's the evidence against us seems so compelling. Or there's too much pain, emotional pain, physical pain. It's just too disturbing. It's just too much. Or I don't have enough support. Or I'm pretty sure that it doesn't work. Because <laughs> that, that's like, I'm so sure it doesn't work that I'm not even going to check and see if it works. That comes up a lot, surprisingly. I don't deserve success because I've been bad. You know, think about the ways that that creeps in. You know, it's uh, this is especially uh, can be seductive for people who've been practicing for a while, and then you know, there's that perfect storm that triggers really unwholesome emotions, and we act them out, and we do something really despicable, and. It can, if we identify with being the bad person, then it can really undermine the practice. It can become really hard to practice. I mean, the thing about doubt is, once we start to think 
about like think that it's hard to practice and think about all the reasons why it's hard to practice we're thinking about the practice we're not practicing and when we're thinking about the practice and not practicing there are, there are no fruits from the practice so the perception nothing's happening is accurate nothing's happening there's no benefit coming from the practice because we're thinking about the practice we're not actually engaging the practice we're not leaping into the unknown as Pema Chodron talks about. So this is why doubt as a hindrance is so toxic because it can masquerade as discerning wisdom like I'm thinking about it, trying to figure it out, I'm applying myself to this problem, but we actually just have to do it. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that has been said quite a bit from some of the Burmese teachers, um, partly as a criticism of Westerners who ask a lot of questions and who want to be certain before they leap. <laughs> you know, they often, uh, I've heard several Burmese teachers talk about how much success young Burmese women, teenagers often, have in their practice, you know, gaining deep, deep, deep insight. Because in that patriarchal society, the Saidas, the Buddhist monks, who are teachers, are kind of the top of the heap. You know, they're the they're the local gods. And so, when a woman is told by one of the local gods to, you know, pay attention to your breath, they just do what they're told. And so, if you have a benevolent as opposed to abusive local god, who's telling you, giving you good instructions, and you just take them as the truth and you just do the best you can, you'll get the results. And this is hard for us Westerners because, for one, we don't have a lot of this devotional energy around the Buddhist teachings and the Buddhist tradition because we didn't grow up. We weren't programmed that way, basically, like some of us might have been in various Christian or Jewish or other kind of faith systems where I feel I still have pretty deep imprint from my Catholic upbringing mostly good, you know, in terms of the programming. <clears throat> but we don't naturally trust these teachings and just, you know, that faith. We need to sort of understand it enough so that it makes, you know, it seems reasonable and that reasonableness inspires some energy. And then we have to start looking. That's why I was suggesting yesterday, you know, to really look at there actually is quite a bit of confidence in the power of the continuity of awareness. We, we already know something about the joy of letting go, the joy of renunciation. So we can water it by keep recalling and keep noticing more and more of these same insights. Even the Buddha and Jesus, you know, they had their own moments of doubt, right? Jesus there, I think he was already up on the cross where he asks God, why have you forsaken me? I think that's sort of interesting. I mean, in, in the sort of theology, Jesus is the Son of God. And, uh, and there he has a moment of doubt. And the Buddha, under the Bodhi tree, you know, was attacked by Mara, which is just, you know, the personification of all the hindrances. And they came as warring demons, armies of demons, 
and seductive um, for him women, the daughters of Mara. And the last was uh, some kind of shame where Mara asks, you know, our own mind asks us, well, who do you think you are to be enlightened, to be free, to be free no matter the conditions? I mean, this is something we face, the same doubt the Buddha faced under the Bodhi tree probably has come up for each of us several times today, like, oh, it's not going to happen. I mean, how many times did we have some version, like, ease, peace, understanding, it's just not going to happen in this set, or in this retreat, or in this lifetime, or whatever, in this moment. We just are so sure. I mean, it's like, we're completely not sure about the practice, but we're so sure, you know, it's not going to happen for us. It's just interesting how doubt, how Mara presents itself in that way, and it's just, you know, but the, well, fortunately, I'm not sure about Jesus, but fortunately, the Buddha, you know, wasn't confused by that voice of doubt. And uh, symbolically, he touched the earth, the mother, and asked her to vouch for, you know, basically the karma of him being there at that moment, that everything that needed to be set in motion had been set in motion. The mind was ripe to see things as they were, no doubt. And some of you know that in terms of this story, the Buddha made a resolve. And, you know, generally, in terms of these spiritual resolves, you don't make the resolve unless you're already sure, right? That's the point of a resolve. It's like the mind intuits this, this sort of like, this is the time, this is the place for this resolve. I'm not going to have another cigarette. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to sit under the Bodhi tree until I realize what can be realized by human mind. That was the Buddhist resolve. So there was a lot of, you know, a lot of certainty arising naturally from the cumula accumulation of all that came before, all the practice that came before. And sometimes we even see this in our lives, like uh, we're entering a difficult situation, but there can be this resolve like, this is going to be okay. I know I freaked out in the past in similar situations, but but I know I'm not afraid, and this is going to be okay. And then lo and behold, you know, it was okay. And this certainty doesn't come from like me wanting to be certain or me not wanting to fail. It's really more about this continuity of awareness is reading the causes and conditions. It's just getting the causes and conditions, getting what is set in motion. In the same way, we can get that, oh, this could be, this could be kind of rough. There's a lot of doubt that uh, I'm, I don't have space around that's at play right now. And there are all these triggers just hanging around in my life situation in the circumstance that are going to trigger the conditioning that it's, you know, been designed to trigger. And so this could be messy. So we can even have space around that. Like, I may not be able to be skillful. I may get swept away here. I may do things that are unskillful. But that's okay, too. If there was something to do, I would do it. Sometimes there's nothing to do. 
it's like sometimes when there are difficult meetings, you know, there's like this strong thing. Oh God, I gotta think of a reason to postpone this meeting. <laughs> I just, you know, I'm just not prepared. And I think sometimes that's really important and skillful to do. But sometimes it's just delaying the inevitable. It's like <clears throat> I'm only as skillful, I'm only as competent as I am, and running from it isn't going to make me more competent. But acknowledging the limitations of this mind and entering in an honest way, entering the situation in an honest way, can really alleviate that confusion or learn how to cope wisely with that confusion, maybe is a more accurate way of saying that. One of the great lines from a fun book, sort of a Dharma book and also a memoir of a Zen practitioner in New York, Larry Shainberg. Um, he wrote a book called Ambivalent Zen. And he had a Japanese Zen teacher um, who's, I think, moved back, since moved back to Japan. But uh, he was taking his teacher to a Yankees game. <clears throat> and as they were riding the subway, he was just lamenting about all the things he was confused about in his life and the uncertainties and, you know, the kind of things you confess to your Zen ma your local Zen master <laughs> when you're taking him out to a ball game. And, uh, and then his teacher had this great answer. Can't decide? Oh, great decision, Larry-san. My teachers say, if you confused, do confused. Don't be confused by confusion. Understand? Be totally confused, Larry-san. Then I guarantee, no problem at all. <laughs> so there's something about, uh, you know, that the hindrances depend on a kind of certainty. And so when we're, when the mind is a little bit more playful and not so serious, it allows some movement uh, with the hindrances. And it actually allows for, um, yeah, a, re, a reformulation. Yeah. Older work when I started when I started work, I run around confused when I first started my job, and he'd look up at me and say, "Do something, anything, even if it's wrong." <laughs> then I would get confidence and walk away. Yeah. yeah. And that that really brings us back, and maybe this is a good place to end tonight. That really brings us back to Pema Chodron talking about like that image of of that nest we create for ourselves with loving-kindness and forgiveness and really being competent at that, reestablishing that in order to be the fool, you know, in order to just do something and learn from the doing. You know, we've heard there's, this is one of those kind of wise sayings that has been said probably in every culture by many, many people in one version or another of like, go out and make a lot of mistakes. It's okay. Because we'll learn. And it's with the... Uh, the real hindrance is actually a holding back, like wanting something that's certain, wanting something that's safe. That is death for a practitioner. Because 
where what however we imagine that safety it's uh, it's not and so we're just going into darkness we're going into confusion into delusion and the thing about delusion or doubt is that it strongly creates the you know probability for more delusion more darkness more not seeing clearly this is the one thing that should scare us I mean if anything's going to scare us is this ability we have to get seduced by delusion and I really I I, I feel like uh, I don't know too many people who are out of the woods around this thing this habit of complacency you know as much as I'd like to think that uh, my teachers or my practice has gotten me out of the woods I'm not clear that that's the case and so I, I think it's useful to have a healthy fear of these encirculars of the mind <laughs> you know the the little ways that seem innocent enough for me to indulge in this or that and then it becomes a tendency and then the tendency eventually becomes the character of the mind and and then the mind just doesn't have the strength to step outside to leap anymore so I'll just end with this quote this little poem from the Dalai Lama he says never give up no matter what is going on never give up develop the heart too much energy in your country he's talking about us hmm. is spent developing the mind instead of the heart be compassionate not just to your friends but to everyone be compassionate work for peace in your heart and in the world work for peace and again I say and I say again never give up no matter what is going on around you never give up so let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.